from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. The text that is set before us this morning is part of our series called Second Wind, Second Light, is from the Gospel of Luke, the 24th chapter, verses 50 to 53. Listen to God's word to you and to me. Then Jesus led the disciples out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them, and he was carried up into heaven. And the disciples worshipped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open this ancient story afresh for us this day uh, so that we would be changed, so that we would be different people than those who tuned in today who are part of worship today, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen. Well, friends, today is Ascension Sunday. It is the day that we set aside in the Christian calendar to listen again to the story of Jesus being taken up right in front of his disciples' eyes, being taken up into heaven. Uh, despite its brevity, this is an incredibly important story for the gospel writer Luke. So important is this story to him that he will actually tell it twice. He'll tell it for the first time in the text I read for you from Luke 24, and he'll tell it again in his opening chapter, a book that we call The Acts of the Apostles. Now, to appreciate the importance of this story, we have to know something about how the concept or the idea of heaven played in the first century. What Luke was thinking of when he was uh, telling this story about Jesus being taken up into heaven. Uh, Tom Wright is a British New Testament scholar, and he points out that the Bible's cosmology, that is how the Bible talks about created things, how the Bible talks about uh, the universe, how the Bible understands uh, the universe, uh, Wright is quick to point out that, that the Bible does not conceive of heaven and earth as two distinct or different locations like the distinction between Athens, Georgia, and Atlanta, Georgia, two very distinct, separate geographic spaces, but rather heaven and earth, in his words, are two different dimensions within the realm of God's creation. They're not two spaces, they're two dimensions within God's 
realm of creation. And here's the point. Jesus was crowned Lord of the earth when he was raised from the dead, bodily raised from the dead to the earth. And he was crowned Lord of heaven in his ascension to God. Now, it's important to remember that only the Lord of heaven and only the Lord of earth is worthy of worship. Only the Lord of heaven and the Lord of earth is worthy of praise. And so by having the disciples worship Jesus, Luke is communicating something to us. Luke is saying that this Jesus is that Lord. This Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. They worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. That's why this story is so important to Luke, so important that he tells it twice. But there is a perplexing component of this narrative, and it comes, at least to me, in that last few words, in the last few words of this chapter. They worshiped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, with great joy. How can they have joy when Jesus is no longer with them? As we are far apart from one another in so many ways in these days, apart from our family in some cases, apart from our family in Christ, apart for some of us from the the people that bring meaning and hope and clarity in our lives, some of the most important people in our lives. We are far from them in this season, and that does not bring us joy. Distance from the ones we love does not produce joy. So what gives here? What is Luke referring to when he talks about the disciples' joy? Why is it that they possess joy even as Jesus departs from them? Turning back to N.T. Wright, he he describes heaven uh, as the control room for the earth. I love this image. The image that that heaven is mission control uh, for the earth. It's, It's where the divine authority proceeds from. It's where the divine authority Uh, is given. It's where we as human beings receive instruction and, and guidance and provision for a faithful life. And, and, and that's why the disciples can still possess joy at a distance. It's because Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. He is divine, and because he has ascended and because he has been enthroned in heaven, he has the capacity to give us what we need to be faithful in these days. He he has the capacity to give us instruction and guidance by the power of the Spirit so that we can live faithfully and that we can live life to uh, the full. Even when we experience times of uncertainty, times that are hard to manage, times that are confusing and exhausting and and disorienting, Jesus is still Lord, and he is at the helm. He's he's at the control panel, right? He's he's running mission control. He's, He's speaking to us in prayer. He's speaking to us remotely, even in in 
community as we gather remotely. He speaks to us in worship. He speaks to us in the scripture. He guides our way. And this still gives us joy, even in these uncertain times. I was thinking about this this image of mission control and my brain uh, immediately went to one of my favorite films, the movie Apollo 13. Uh, Apollo 13 is is the docudrama that tells the, the story of the harrowing events surrounding NASA's 1970 lunar mission. Uh, After leaving the Earth's orbit, an oxygen tank exploded on Apollo 13, causing a a series of of dangerous uh, conditions and and disruptions. Uh, The original mission of this moon landing was was actually scrapped uh, mid-flight, and and a new mission quickly emerged. Uh, Execute a viable and a safe plan to get the astronauts back home to Earth. Part of the plan that eventually came to pass required these three astronauts to abandon what was known as the command module. It was called the Odyssey. And they had to enter the landing module, the the module that would bring two of those astronauts to the surface of the moon. And that, that module was called Aquarius. Aquarius would be their ride home. One of the problems with that plan, however, was that the, that the lunar module, this Aquarius, was designed for only two people, not three. So after the astronauts settled into their new uh, transport, personnel on the ground, personnel in mission control, uh, began to detect CO2 levels that were increasing at a deadly rate. The carbon dioxide filter on Aquarius was designed and built to purify the air for only two astronauts occupying that space and only for a discrete amount of time for them to leave the command module, go to the moon's surface, and to come back again. Well, on the ground at Mission Control, and and this, by the way, is the film version of the story, a bunch of technicians and scientists lock themselves in a, uh, a conference room, and they're given the task to make a square CO2 filter fit into a round opening. A square CO2 filter to fit in a round opening so that the required filtration would be sufficient for their journey home. Well, back at Mission Control in the film, uh, which is in Houston, Texas, these technicians and scientists, they begin to dump boxes of material and equipment onto the table. And it's the same material and equipment the astronauts have on board. And and they're given a very particular task. Bring the astronauts safely home by building a makeshift adapter with what they had on board. And that mission, we're told in the film is eventually accomplished with tube socks, hoses from a spacesuit, and duct tape. Whether it's in heaven or on earth, duct tape is an essential ingredient to any life hack. I was thinking about Apollo 13 and that that particular CO2 filtration scene this week, and in some ways life 
and ministry feels like we are on the Aquarius. We're waiting to hear from Mission Control on what we need to do. This pandemic and this time has been so disorienting. It's been so disheartening. And in a lot of ways, at least for me, it feels at least once a day and and oftentimes more than this, I'm asked to fit a square peg into a round hole, whether it's professionally, personally, or relationally. And this square peg into a round hole scenario for all of us, takes on various and and different forms, right? How do I adequately grieve all the losses I'm experiencing, square peg into a round hole? How do I manage my full-time job and continue to be a full-time teacher or tutor for my elementary-aged children? Round or square peg, round hole, how am I going to find safe childcare when I have to return to work? Square peg, round hole. How do I get what I need relationally when I continue to be in lockdown in my retirement community? Square peg, round hole. How do I find rest as I continue to live outside when, when the vast majority of the places that are usually open are still closed? Square peg, round hole. How am I going to pay the mortgage now that I've, I've lost my job or my income has been significantly reduced? Square peg, round hole. How am I going to manage my anxiety with so much uncertainty still looming? Square peg, round hole. How will my spiritual health be nurtured when I feel so distant from my church family or, or my spiritual friends and mentors that feed my soul? Square peg, round hole. The text for Ascension Sunday illumined one of the square peg round hole challenges that I, that I feel like I'm carrying and, and others are carrying around these days. Right, the very last line of this text, the final line of the whole Gospel of Luke, they, the disciples, were continually in the temple blessing God. This most central act of life with God, this act of worship, took place not just in their homes, but also in the temple, and we are missing that these days. That experience is one we have been unable to share in person For 70 days today, the last time we were together in worship in person was was March the 8th. And increasingly, I feel like I'm on the Aquarius and I'm waiting for wisdom from God, wisdom from, from mission control to get the square peg to fit in the round hole. And I'm so thankful that we've formed a wonderful and competent and faithful task force here at the church. And I'm so thankful for our spiritual leaders on our session and this process of trying to discern the how and the what and the when of our life together as a congregation in these days. The how, the what, and the when of our worship and our ministry on campus. 
Now, friends, I don't have to tell you that there is a lot of voices. There are many voices out there giving advice on every topic. And and this square peg round hole that is the logistics and timeline for quote-unquote coming back together uh, in the age of coronavirus is no exception. There are a lot of opinions about this out in the world. There's a lot of thought about how churches in the U.S. will, will gather safely without losing the integrity of worship or diminishing our sense of what Christian community is really all about. People across churches and denominations, people in this city and in this nation and throughout the world are talking about what's going to need to change or or what's going to have to be manipulated or what will be different when we quote unquote come back together. People are talking about stopping the greeting before worship. People are talking about no food or fellowship after worship or for any gathering. People are talking about worship of 10 people or less or or 50 people or less and of course keeping physical distance all the while. People are talking about protocols where where folks will have to come on church campuses and and have their temperature checked and and everyone's going to have to wear masks throughout worship. Uh, People are talking about putting reservation systems in place for seating that guarantees adequate spacing. I I talked to to one person who's thinking about going to that old school exclusive practice of pew reservations where you have your name on the pew uh, that you pay a pew tax on. Getting rid of of, of paper copies of, of anything, of the of the bulletin, getting rid of the hymnals, not passing an offering plate, going to fully digital communication, fully digital uh, hymnals, utilizing uh, screens to help guide people through the liturgy, whether they're, they're screens that you hold in your hand or whether they're screens that are put in to the worship space. And of course, one of the biggest questions out there is will people even want to gather in person anytime in the near future. Will we only ever have worship via live stream or or pre-recorded services? Will we only have community via Zoom or Google Hangouts? And really, how sustainable is that? I received a a thought-provoking email from one of our uh, faithful members uh, now in his late 70s. I received it this past week. He wrote, a thought from an old man. Have we unleashed a monster? I've been worshiping virtually for weeks now. I can sit in my pajamas in front of a fire and I can hear every word of the sermon and enjoy the music and quietly reflect on my life. I have to ask myself, is this better than getting up, putting on a suit, driving to Midtown, sitting on a hard bench and listening to a sermon where I can only hear 50% of the words? I mean, that's a good question. In addition, there, there's a lot of conversations out, out there, and there are those who are in this space right now who are we're having these conversations about choral and, and congregational singing and their place in the future of the church. There's a lot of debate about it with very limited data and science 
to inform a faithful decision one way or another. People are wondering, well, we only have instrumental music moving forward. Some have even suggested that perhaps uh, that sacred dance and sacred drama so popular in the 1970s and 1980s American church will make perhaps a brief comeback. Or think about the sacraments, right? Individually packaged communion sets. I actually have a thousand of these in my office right now. I bought them early on in the pandemic thinking that we might need them down the road. Some are saying no intinction anymore, no more passing bread and, and juice plates, baptizing babies with, with the parents holding the child and the pastor standing six feet away and with sanitized hands flicking water on the child, uh, delivering the Trinitarian formula of baptism and certainly no parading the child down the center aisle. For me, all of this conversation uh, feels like trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. And we're waiting on mission control. We're, we're, we're waiting on God to give us instruction on how these seemingly incombat- incompatible pieces all fit together for our worship and our life together. I want to go back to the film uh, Apollo 13. You may have noted that earlier in my sermon, I was uh, intentional to say that I was talking about the, the film version of the story. Uh, in, in, the, in the film, when the CO2 problem emerged, it was depicted with a bunch of technicians and scientists going into a room with material the astronauts had on board, and they're frantically trying to come up with a solution to filter the air. And this uh, takes place over several scenes in the film. And really, truth be told, that was just some good old-fashioned movie-making drama. Because the truth of the matter is that scientists and technicians who were in mission control for Apollo 13 had already developed a contingency plan for the astronauts if they needed to take Aquarius back to Earth. They had actually already created the filter contraption years earlier in preparation for that flight with material they knew would be on board. So if a moment of crisis hit, they had already imagined the solution. It was something they had already prepared for. And here's the point of why I'm circling back to Apollo 13 and what I'm trying to say here this morning. And I think it's a theological point, and I think it's a point that gives us a little bit of second wind. It gives us some hope that God has a very, very long view of our salvation and the salvation of the world. That God already has imagined a way through the coronavirus. That God has already imagined us coming through our loneliness and our longing, that God has already imagined an end to the supremacy narratives of all kinds. 
God has already imagined reconciliation on the other side of of a broken relationship. God has already imagined us coming through the troubling days that we now face, no matter how they are marked or how they are measured. God has already imagined our rescue. God has already imagined our, our healing, our liberation, our wholeness. God has already imagined the rebirth of our faith and even the rebirth of our church. And it brings me incredible comfort and it brings me incredible confidence to know that God has already imagined what our life together will look like into the future. That God has already imagined what worship will be, what fellowship will be, what spiritual formation will be according to God's sovereignty and God's providential care. God's sovereignty and providence church take the long view. And our work, our work in these times, as we are on Aquarius, our work is to continue to joyfully worship no matter what that looks like, to put our trust in God Our work is to discern Christ's voice amidst and perhaps within all the voices we currently hear. Our work is to be patient, long-suffering. Our work is sacrificial love. Our work is to pray and to read the scriptures and to discern. And our work is to wait on mission control for wisdom and for the courage to act For by God's grace and in God's imagination, that square peg will fit into that round hole. Remember that Jesus was raised from the dead. He is Lord of the earth. Jesus ascended into heaven. He is Lord of heaven. Jesus is the one who speaks to us even still. By the power of the Spirit, we lean on His guidance. We lean on His word. We lean on His direction now and into the future. And may the peace of God, which goes beyond all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Him. May His peace live inside of you this day and every day ahead. Amen and be at peace.